0: Kyle's first loan work at the board. So we're very privileged and fortunate that he's here tonight. Thanks, Kyle. You're supposed to be at the board, man. You're leaving me on edge. Can we get this a little more trebly? And let it seems very echoish to me. Is it echoish to you? Okay. So it's, so it's kind of hard for me to like really speak because it's just a little too hot for me. But um, <clears throat> that's getting better. That's better now. I feel a little more natural. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 4, and Luke chapter 8. That's where we're going to start. If you have the Harmony of the Gospels, we're in on page 70... We're starting with paragraph 65, and tonight I'm hoping we're going to go all the way through paragraph 70, which takes us to page 84. It doesn't seem like a lot, but once I get going, you know, it takes a little while. But uh, okay, paragraph uh, 65, looking at uh, Mark 4, Matthew 8, Luke 8, if you don't have the book itself. But let's pray a moment and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. We're grateful for Anna and Adam and their sharing your love and music. And we thank you, Father, for Scott and Kyle and their work on the board and for each and everyone who's come this night. May you instruct us. May you guide us. May we learn more and more about Yeshua, our Messiah and Savior this night. For we pray in his name. Amen. Now, if you look at Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says that on that day when evening was come, he said unto them, Let us go over onto the other side. Of course, on what day? Well, this is still the same day as paragraph 61 or going back to Matthew chapter 12, the day of Israel's national rejection of Yeshua the Messiah. This is the day when... Uh, Messiah had healed a man who was blind and mute, couldn't speak, did so according to the rabbinical expectations of what the Messiah would do. And thus the people asked him, Is this not indeed the Messiah of Israel, the son of David? And the Jewish leadership said, No, he did this miracle by the power of the evil one. And as a consequence, judgment is set on the nation of Israel. A judgment that will affect all of Israel and it will be experienced in 70 AD when Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and the Jewish people are dispersed to the four corners of the earth. That doesn't mean that individuals within Israel cannot experience the grace and forgiveness of God. This is very much like what transpires in the Hebrew Scriptures when the Jewish people are coming through out of Egypt and through the wilderness. And while in the wilderness, God had led them to Kadesh Barnea and then told them to take the promised land. The spies go into the land of Israel. They come back, ten of them, with a report that says we cannot take the land. Two individuals, Joshua and Caleb, who say we can take the land. As a result, the people as a whole follow after the ten prominent voices. A riot breaks out. Aaron and Moses are nearly Uh, killed in that riot, and then God uh, speaks. And judgment is set on the nation of Israel. And thus for 40 years, Israel will wander in the wilderness, in the desert, and those who had come out of of Egypt would not enter into the promised land, only Joshua and Caleb. Judgment was set. It would fall on the nation, and there was no reversing that judgment. This is very similar in that respect. Judgment is now set. The nation of Israel, as indicated by its leaders, has rejected Yeshua as the Messiah. And thus, Jerusalem is going to fall. The temple is going to be destroyed and the Jewish people are going, are going to go into dispersion. Despite that, there will be a faithful remnant like Joshua and Caleb who do, did enter the Promised Land. There will be some Jews who will be responsive to Messiah's call and will recognize him as Messiah. That event has taken place And thus, Messiah's ministry is transformed because of that moment in time and in history. So now, on what day? On that day when Israel as a nation had rejected Yeshua as Messiah, and now the Lord's ministry is going to take a dramatic turn. No longer does He do His miracles in order to authenticate His claims. He has already authenticated His claims, and His claims have been rejected. Now he's going to perform his miracles for two purposes. One, to train the disciples for the ministry they are to carry on in his absence. A ministry we will see uh, articulated for us in the book of Acts. And secondly, he's going to perform his miracles on the basis of faith for those who come to him for personal benefit and healing. But you'll notice he'll only heal those who exhibit faith in him. Up to the time that Israel rejected Messiah, he performed miracles and people didn't even know who did it. He performed miracles without faith being a prerequisite. But now after his rejection, faith is a prerequisite and the miracles are for the purpose of instructing the disciples for the ministry there to carry on after his death, burial, resurrection and ascension. So here we get We begin to see this unfold before us in the text. So in Mark chapter 8, verse uh, 4, verse 35, he said on that day, on the day of the national rejection of Yeshua, Yeshua and his disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee. As they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, a storm comes up and their lives are now in jeopardy. Luke's account in verse 23 says they were filling with water, but as they sailed... Yeshua fell asleep. There came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. Now, I don't know how many of you sail. Anybody here sail? Hands down. Hands up. Simon says hands down. One time. Well, when I was living in Annapolis before we moved here, used to sail quite a bit. Had a little 24-footer. And used to go out on the Chesapeake Bay all the time, sail across the eastern bay, out into the ocean, down to North Carolina. And we were heading for Bermuda, about 700 miles offshore. That was our uh, destination. As we started, that is, my friend Brian and I, as we started to learn to sail, we said, we're going to get to Bermuda one day. So one summer, I had the summer off. It would take us about a week to get there, a week to get back. So we know we needed, you know, about a month and also probably a week to rest And then we thought, you know, I thought if we made it across, we'd probably ditch the boat fly back, because it would have been so arduous. You know, in a 24-foot boat, the water's out in the ocean and going across the Gulf Stream, it can be rather crazy. But we were going to do it because we wanted to have that experience. And my wife put her foot down. She said, I said, so we're going to head to Bermuda. This is our course. This is how we're going to do it and so on. And she's listening, nice, straight face and so on. And she looks up. She says, no, you're not. So I said, Brian, maybe we ought to take a right turn when we get out into the ocean instead of going straight and keep going east and we'll go down the coast. And Mary says, that sounds reasonable. So, you know, that's what we ended up doing, you know. wasn't a whole lot of fanfare and discussion, just, no, you're not. So we didn't. But nevertheless, to think of a boat filling up with water and getting ready to sink. And remember, this is in the ancient world. You know, they didn't have all kinds of Yeah, sumps, bilges, or those kinds of uh, life vests that infl— you know that uh, what do you call it? Inflate once it hits. They don't have any of that stuff. You know, they're just going to go down with the ship. So the boat's filling with water. Mark verse 38 tells us, and he himself, that is Yeshua, was in the stern—that's the back. Case any of you aren't familiar with nautical terms. By the way, when you read in the Book of Acts. Of the uh, shipwreck that Paul experiences, like I think it covers one or two chapters. It's filled with nautical language that's really, really neat for those individuals who are sailors. It doesn't come out so much in the English text, but in the Greek text. We'll have to talk about that sometime. But at, he himself was in the stern of the boat, and he's asleep on a cushion. Now the boat's filling with water, so is getting all wet. He's sleeping, as it were, in water but he's fast asleep and uh verse 38 Yeshua is not shook by these developments he's just relaxed and the disciples say master do you not care for us what an interesting phrase isn't it master cares not that we perish and with that he awoke obviously he did care uh, what was going on in their hearts and in their minds and he awoke and notice what he does he rebuked the wind. The Greek word for rebuke means he muzzled the wind. And in verse 40 and 44, he says, And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you fearful? Have ye not faith? That's the message he wants them to learn. He wants them to learn to have faith. Because that is going to be the prerequisite now for miracles to occur and for them to learn under what circumstances they will now begin to uh, perform the works of Messiah by means of His Spirit. Faith is going to be key. Up to that point, He was doing all kinds of things for people. Now, He's instructing them. They need to learn to have faith in Him. Now, in verse 40, 44, He says, Why are you fearful? And then look at verse 41, And they feared exceedingly. If you look back at verse... 40. he says, Why are you fearful? Have you no faith? And then in verse 44, And they feared exceedingly and said unto one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Two different Greek words for fearful in this text. The first word in verse 40 means to be cowardly, to be afraid. But the word in verse 41 means to be in awe. So in verse 40 when they say, Why are you afraid why are you cowardly but then when they see what yeshua did in verse 41 they say and they were in awe exceedingly they were greatly awed by what had occurred so much so that they asked the question what kind of a man is this in matthew's account he says why are you fearful O ye of little faith wants to teach them about faith and then he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. If you look at Luke's account, verse 24, all three say the same thing. He awoke and he rebuked. He muzzled the sea. It was like he just contained it. You know, I walk my dogs uh, every day, about two miles, you know, on this loop that we have. And they're all kind of dogs that they encounter. Few of them do they like. Most of the uh, others of them, they like and they're okay. Some are big, like a big yellow lab, but most of the dogs, whether big or small, they do not like these dogs, you know, that's around us. So I'm always walking them, and then when I see these other dogs coming, you know, I have to make a choice. Do I want to encounter this again, or do I just want to, you know, avoid it? So most of the time, I just take them, I go out in the middle of the street, and I walk them over there, and they're pulling, and I'm bringing them in. And then I go back on my merry way, you know. Then I ran into this girl that was walking her dogs. I'm always meeting people. And what happened was I'm walking the dogs. My dog, Dylan, he's my bigger cavalier. He, uh, he's walking beside me. And whenever a bicycle comes by, boom, he's uh, after it, you know. So this uh, girl that's seeing all this in the distance She is watching. She's got a wonderful German shepherd who's just sitting there at her side, you know, not moving an inch, barely breathing. You know, this dog is just obedient to the hilt. You don't want me to breathe? I'm not breathing. You know, just sitting there like a stone. And so I come up to them, and she says, does your dog do that all the time? I said, yeah, he does it all the time. I mean, every time there's a dog that goes by, boom, he's after it. She says, well, you know, you're not walking your dog right I said, really? This is like the sixth dog I've had. I'm like twice your age, and I've been doing this a long longer than you are. What do you mean? I'm not walking my dog right. She said, well, look, if you take the um, leash and make a loop. I said, make, make a loop. She said, just reach inside, make a loop. And she showed me all this stuff. You put it around the head because right behind the ear, it's very sensitive. And you don't pull hard, but if you pull like this, they'll really obey. Now, they're going crazy because of this German shepherd, right? I'm like, I said, okay, you know, I'll do whatever you say. So I do this, and boom, they sit, you know? And she said, here, walk with us. And so now they're walking with this German shepherd they've never met, and they're like, good as gold. I said, this is awesome, you know? So then later, I meet a couple that I know. And I said, you know, I met this girl, her name's Stella. Oh, Stella, the dog whisperer of the community. I said, oh, you know, Stella? Oh, yeah, she's always telling people what they should do, you know. And uh, don't listen to her because she doesn't know what she's talking about. I said, really? My dog's obeyed, you know. So the point is, by listening to Stella, I was able to muzzle these dogs so that when they came to these, and now I decided I'm not walking out on the street. I'm just going for it, you know. And I'm going to just bring them in so that they learn to listen to me. They're getting better at it. But they're still not there yet. But the point is, you know, that he rebuked the sea. He just muzzled it, brought it in, and made it stop. Controlled it without any kind of variation. That wind was not going to do whatever he did not want it to do. And so he didn't, like, yell at it. You know, some people look at it and say, Yell at it, you know, rebuke this, and it'll go. No, no, no. He controlled it, and he muzzled it, and he kept it from doing what, he did not want it to do on this particular occasion, which was to cause more fear for the disciples that was raising their cowardliness, and he wants to raise their trust in him. So when he does this, they say, what kind of a man is this? The disciples learn that Yeshua is in control of even natural events. This miracle is for the training of the twelve. Now note this, the disciples how the disciples contrast with the Pharisees, the leaders of that day. The Pharisees saw Yeshua perform the miracles of casting out this spirit, right? And they said he did this by the power of Beelzebub. When the disciples see Yeshua control the wind, they say, this is one in whom we stand in awe. The very same word that is used in standing in awe of God himself. They conclude that is the Jewish leadership of Yeshua's day, they conclude what he's doing is by the power of the enemy. The disciples conclude he must be God. <laughs> you know? So those are the two different worlds that are in conflict. In paragraph 66, he demonstrates power over demons. Remember, this is revelation from Messiah to his disciples in view of his rejection. That's what's just occurred. And now in paragraph 66, Mark 5, Matthew 8, Luke 8, We're looking at his power over demons. By the way, this is the first detailed account of an extreme demonic state. Up to this point, we only read that a demon did this or a demon caused that, such as there was a demon that caused this man to be mute. He couldn't speak. But this is the first detailed account of an extreme demonic state. If you look at Matthew, verses 2 to 5, it says, They came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gerizines. And when he was come out of the boat straightway, immediately, there met him out of the tombs. Now, think about how extreme this is. First of all, he's hanging out in a cemetery. A man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling. He lived in the cemetery. No one could, could anymore bind him, couldn't control him. Not even with chains could they control him because he had bound, been bound often with fetters and chains and the chains were he was able to break and the fetters broken in pieces and no man had strength to tame him. Always, night and day in the cemetery and in the mountains, he would cry out, he would cut himself with stones. And so this is a man that's under an extreme control of demonic powers and Mark describes it in length given the fact that Mark does not give lengthy descriptions of much of anything this must have struck Peter because Mark is Peter's emmanuensis or secretary Mark is actually Peter's account as he saw it this must have made an indelible Im- pr- impression on Peter and Mark as he's writing primarily for the Romans with very small short uh vignettes of information must have been greatly uh, affected by this account because he gives a great deal of detail for this rather than any other uh, accounts that we have. So Yeshua and the disciples cross from the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee to the northeast side. And this side was Gentile territory. The Jewish territory in the first century went from the region of Bethsaida to Migdal, which is on the western side. From Tiberias up to the other side was the Gentile area. And so Yeshua is getting away from the Jewish crowds in order to teach his disciples. Now in Mark verse 1, it says, They came to the, to the country of the Gerizim's. In Matthew's account, verse 28, looking at Matthew 8, it says, into the country of the Gadarenes. And in Luke's account, it says that they arrived in the country of the Gerasenes. So some have said, see, there's a contradiction. Luke and Mark say he was in the area of the Gerasenes. Matthew says he was in the area or the country of the Gadarenes. And so there are two different, two different terms that are used. But when one understands the geography of the 1st century in the land of Israel this is really all cleared up. First of all, the term Gerazines refers to inhabitants of the city of Gergesa, which was a city in a region and the region was known as Gedara. And thus or I should, it was known as Gedara and thus the you would be referred to as a Gadarene if you came from this region, but if you came from the city of of Gergesa, you could be called a Gerizim. So one is making reference to he came from this region. The others are saying he came from this city, which is in this region. So there's no contradiction. Just one is making reference to the city, while one is... Two are making reference to the city, while one is making reference to the region in which the city was located. So... um that could be helpful to us. Gergesa was a city. If you're looking at a map of of the land of Israel, it would be due east of the Sea of Galilee, whereas uh, Gadara, the city of Gadara, is located uh, southeast of the city of or the 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 Sea of Galilee. And this whole region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee was known as uh, the region of Gadara, named after that city which was south of the Sea of Galilee. But this man was not from Gadara. He was from Gergesa, which is further north in the region of uh, Gadara. In any case, as he makes his way uh, into this region, he sees this man that is extremely uh, demonized. In Matthew's account, verse 29, it's interesting to note that the demons know who Yeshua is. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, thou son of God? So they know who he is, and they also know what their future will be. Have you come here to torment us before our time? They would be tormented in the lake of fire. And Luke makes reference to this in verse 31 they entreated him that he would not command them to depart into the abyss. Originally, the abyss, Lake of Fire, were created for the fallen angels that had rebelled prior to the creation of the world. And, uh, but now, in light of fallen humanity, fallen humanity will also be uh, consigned there as, uh, with respect to judgment at the end of time. In Mark's account, verse 18, the man who was demonized uh, and is healed by Yeshua, it says in Mark, verse 18, that um, this man, once he was healed, wanted to become one of Yeshua's disciples. Look at the end. And he that had been possessed with devils besought him that he might be with him. He wanted to be one of Yeshua's disciples. but look what Yeshua tells him. He suffered him not. He would not allow him to be one of his disciples, that is, in following him. He certainly was a disciple in the general sense, but he wasn't going to add him to one of his number of the twelve. But rather, he says, go to your house and unto your friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you and he went his way and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Yeshua had done for him and all men did marvel. Now the reason why he does not want this man as one of his disciples is because he's a Gentile. We know that he's a Gentile because he's in the region of Gadara, this is a Gentile area. His ministry right now is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So his focus is on the Jewish people. So he but and it's also interesting In other accounts, and we'll get you in a minute, in other accounts, he's going to tell them not to say a word to anyone because he's already been rejected as Messiah, and thus his miracles are not for public knowledge because his miracles are no longer for the purpose of authenticating his claims. He's already done that. His claims are rejected. His miracles are for the purpose of training the 12 and for personal help where there is need on the basis of faith. Why does he tell this one to go and tell everyone? Because this man's a Gentile. And thus all of those issues concern the Jewish people. So he's telling him, as a Gentile, no, you can't follow me with the twelve. And number two, you can go and let everybody know what good things the Lord has done for you. And he did, and many Gentiles began to respond to the message as well. So we have Gentile response already in the account of Yeshua's ministry. Where do I think what? Has to be in space because it's a real place. I mean, but space meaning, plate, any some place. Space is a place. Three spaces. In what, what? What are you referring to? Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that. There are, you know, the. T- Um, Well, yeah, well, we could talk about that. Jewish people, you know, Jewish people, like all people, believe and don't believe a lot of things. Uh, But certainly here what we know is that the uh, demons know that there's an abyss and they request that the Lord not send them to it. Okay. so uh, now let's take a look also uh, what transpires uh, in in this account as well. Um, because if you take a look at Mark's account, we read about his the condition under which this man existed. But we notice in verse 6, when he saw Yeshua from afar, he ran and he worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What have I to do with you, uh, Yeshua, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you that by God torment me not for he said unto him come forth and the unclean spirit came out of the man now look at verse 9 he asked him what is your name we said earlier that the uh, rabbinic means of casting out spirits in the first century involved getting the name of the demon and casting it out in the case of an individual who by means of a demon could not speak they couldn't cast out such a demon because they couldn't get the name of the demon and it was an individual who was mute as a result of a demonic activity that he couldn't speak. And thus the rabbis said, this is a a demonic situation we cannot heal because we can't get the name of the demon from the man because he's causing the man to be mute. So they said, but when the Messiah comes, he will be able to heal such a one because he will not need the name of the demon in order to heal him. And thus that's what Yeshua does, and it leads to the unpardonable sin and the national rejection of of Yeshua by the Jewish leadership. Here, it's interesting. He does resort to the Jewish method of of casting out a spirit, because in Mark ch- verse nine he says, "What is your name?" And now this is interesting. He said, "My name is Legion, for we are many." So it's like one demon, maybe a head demon that had taken control of this man, is speaking for the rest of those demons that are affecting this individual. He says that his name is Legion, for there are many. So a legion in the Roman army was anywhere between three to 6,000 men. So this man was extremely oppressed and controlled uh, by these spirits. Now, hold on one minute. Now, um, and he besought him much, that is, this demon... In behalf of the the thousands of demons, he besought him that he, Yeshua, would not send them away out of the country and, according to Luke, into the abyss. Rather, they said that, you know, send us, look at verse 12, into the pigs, the swine, that we may enter into them. Yeshua, even in his mercy to these demons, he doesn't send them to the abyss, which he could, but rather he tells these unclean spirits to come out and they were given permission to enter the swine and the herd rushed down the steep that is the side of the hill into the sea of Galilee he said the number was about 2000 and they were drowned in the sea now in verse 15 as a result the man who was demonized by these multitude of demons he was sitting Now he's clothed, whereas before he was not. Now he's in his right mind before he was not. And then it says in verse 16, And they that saw it declared unto them how it befell him that was possessed with the demons. And they began to beseech Jesus, began to beseech Yeshua to depart from their borders. Because they now, first of all, they were frightened by what they saw. And perhaps secondly, part of their income was just... Taken from them as these swine are thrown into into the sea, so they entreat him to leave. And interesting, Yeshua accommodates them. And as he was entering into the boat, he that had been possessed then asks if he can join them. Yeshua just says okay, and he and he leaves uh, the company of these individuals. But what happens here is that. The disciples now are being trained and taught about the power of the Messiah in healing, uh, in uh, over demons, in healing individuals, and having uh, control over them. It says that he went out to Decapolis. Decapolis was deca ten, opolis city. So this is was an area of 10 ten Greek-speaking Gentile cities none of which were on the west side of the Jordan River, all were on the east side where this man was located. So he told this man to go out, publish what has taken place, proclaim what has taken place. He does so among the cities of the Decapolis, among these Gentiles, and many of them are marveling at what they had heard. Mitch, you wanted to share something. I think this has much to do with Messiah's presence, you know, because he's the Messiah of Israel. He is training the twelve. So I think in many respects he's bringing out uh, much of what is, is occurring so that the disciples now, when they encounter these things, not that they were going to encounter them to the same degree or in the same number. Remember, John tells us that if all the things Yeshua did could be written, the books of the world couldn't contain them. So these are just short vignettes of experiences. We don't really know to how many he had in terms of dealing with demonic activity. But this is one example that stood out in their minds. There may not have been many like this where there were individuals with legions. But I would say that um, much of this stuff is happening because the Messiah is present and he's u- utilizing the activity in order to teach the disciples. But not to the degree to... to I don't think we ought to, to conclude from this. There's a lot more demonic activity going on than we really see. I don't think we should conclude that. I mean, it may very, well, may very well be happening, but I don't think we ought to expect that in every instance things are happening that it's demonically inspired. I think we have to be cautious in that because of the purpose for which all of this is occurring which is the training of the 12 and the demonstrating to them of his power so that they might exhibit the kind of faith he desires them to exhibit. I don't, I don't know if I could really answer that, but I would be cautious on the basis of these accounts to conclude that whenever we see things or often when we see them, they are demonically charged. That's true. there's some well and also David in terms of temp- no, no, no I mean to tempting him to number the people of Israel that led to some judgment and also Genesis with the serpent. we know that's the evil one that's inspiring those things. so you don't have the same sort of prevalence that's for sure, but the Messiah is not present yet. I don't, no, I'm not saying there's an increase of anything. I'm only saying that I think it is recorded for us because he's training the 12 and he's demonstrating his power. In the, first, in the Hebrew Scriptures, Messiah is not present. So that aspect of Messiah's work is not clearly articulated. By the way, also the book of Job, we, we have some clear indications of that. Also the book of Daniel. You know, we have evil spirits that are impeding the angel, uh, Michael or Gabriel from getting the message to, uh, to Daniel. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I think much of this has to do with Messiah's presence and his purpose in teaching, training, and demonstrating his power to encourage faith and trust in him. Now, if you take a look at uh, paragraph 67, which is, uh, we're looking at Mark 5, Matthew 9, and Luke chapter 8. We now see, we saw his power over nature, power over demons, power over disease and death. For the disciples, what they're about to encounter will be a lesson on Messiah's power. They're going to encounter... Uh, the the resurrection of the daughter of jarius who was a ruler in the synagogue for him this is going to be a lesson of faith for the disciples it's going to be a lesson regarding messiah's power so what happens yeshua and his disciples cross back over to the jewish side look at verse 21 of mark's account and when yeshua had crossed over again in the boat onto the other side so he's left he's left the gentile territory He's come back into the Jewish territory, and in Mark, verse 22, it says, And there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing Yeshua, he fell at his feet, number one. Number two, he begged him much, so he entreated him uh, greatly, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. And he said, I pray you that you would come Lay your hands on her that she may be made whole and live. Now, in Luke's account, in verse... And notice, Yeshua will now respond to personal need and requests made on the basis of faith. So now in Luke's account, in verse 42, we're told that this daughter was only about 12 years of age... And she was dying. So Luke is the doctor. He's got a little bit more detail on what's happening in the medical, from the medical perspective. The daughter is 12. She's dying. And he, her father has come to Yeshua and has begged him, fallen down on his knees before him, and begged him to come and heal uh, his daughter. Yeshua then begins to go with him. Uh, And he went with him, verse 24 of Mark's account, and a great multitude followed him. And then Mark tells us they thronged him. The Greek word here means to press upon him to the point of suffocation. So there's so many people here that they're just pressing in on him. And while all of these people are pressing in on him, Matthew 20 tells us a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, came behind him and touched the border of his garment. For she said within herself, she said to herself, if I could just touch his garment, I would be made whole. So this crowd is pressing on him to the point of suffocation, pressing very tightly, and a woman with an issue of bleeding for 12 years. It's interesting that the daughter is 12 years old, and is dying, and this woman is has this issue of bleeding for twelve years. She comes up behind him and touches the border, it says in Matthew, of his garment, or the tassels of his garment. According to, to the book of Numbers, all Jewish men had to attach tassels to their garments, according to the law. That's why people wear the taluses today uh, in their uh, in the synagogue with the tassels because of the Mosaic law. By the word, the word talus is not a real word. It's an acronym. Because It's not really even an acronym. That's not true. In the Hebrew language, their alphabet is also their numbers. So if you take the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and you write the number 613, the letters you would use would be pronounced "tallis." It would have the uh, tough it would have the Lamed, it would have the um, uh, the Samik, and so it would be, uh, or it would have a Yod in there, The different letters, and it would add up to the number 613. Now, because you have these consonants, you can put vowels to it. There's no vowels in the Hebrew language. So you can put these vowels to it, and you can actually read a number. You can pronounce a number. So the, the number 613 took on this name, this word, talus, because it represents, the talus is meant to represent the Mosaic Law. And one of those 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law is the commandment to attach fringes to your garments. So the other day as I was walking my dog, comes back to dog walking stories, there's a lot of Jewish people in my community. And so there's this Orthodox Jewish man, young guy, And uh, he had a kippah on, a yarmulke on, and he had what's known as the tzitzis. He didn't have a talus. That's a shawl that's usually worn outside. You see that when Jewish men are at the western wall. Sometimes they put it over their heads, sometimes just over their shoulders. But during the day, Orthodox Jews, knowing that they have to wear taluses or tassels throughout the day, they actually have a garment with with tassels on it that they wear underneath their shirt. So something like a t-shirt has these tassels attached. And so as to demonstrate to everyone that they are fulfilling the law, they generally put this on underneath their outer shirt. And then they take the tassels and they put them outside their waists, you know, so that you see it's hanging there. So it's like a little thing they have underneath. And as he was walking by and I'm looking at him, he was uh, praying or whatever he was doing, I was thinking that... By wearing that garment with the tassels attached to it, he was in reality breaking the law, not fulfilling it, even though he thought he was fulfilling it. Because the law doesn't say make a garment with tassels on it. The law says attach tassels to your garments. But the rabbis argue, so as not to have to put tassels on your garments, we'll put tassels on a garment that we would wear underneath our garments. And it reminded you what Yeshua said, that you break God's law by your traditions. And so this man would think, I'm fulfilling the law by doing this. When in reality, he was breaking the law while thinking he was fulfilling it. And it's those kinds of things that uh, can uh, cause great havoc in terms of understanding what the law is really telling us and expecting of us. In any case... Yeshua had the tassels on his garment, not a talus or a garment with tassels. It said it was on the borders of his garment. And And of course, Yeshua fulfilled all the law, so he had to have these tassels. As she's holding the tassel, she expected that he would be healed. She would be healed. And she was healed. And now here's the interesting thing. By the way, this issue of blood, according to Leviticus chapter 15 and other passages, chapters 18, rendered her permanently unclean, or at least until the point at which her issue of blood was resolved. But she had it for 12 years, so it didn't look like that was going to happen anytime soon. So Yeshua really not only healed her, but now rendered her clean. She could go into the temple. She could worship uh, in a way that she hadn't been able to before. By the way... Matthew's account, verse 26, as they talk about the women, we find that the issue of blood was not her only problem. If you look at verse 26, that's the wrong that's not true. Um, Look at... at, um, Oh, Mark's account, I'm sorry. Mark's I wrote in here, Matthew, i got to change it. Oh, I have Mark, I read it wrong. Mark's account, verse 26 said, she had this issue of blood for 12 years, but she also had suffered many things of the physicians to whom she went in order to be healed. And not only had she suffered many things, she spent all that she had and she was not any better, but actually she got worse. And I'm sure that's, that may be true. We would think, you know, some of us have experienced that same thing. We just go to doctors and doctors, things get worse, money gets spent, and we're no better off or even in worse situations. Now, Luke's a doctor. It's very interesting to see how he talks about this. Look at verse 43. She says, He says, this woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. Then she spent all her living on physicians and could not be healed. He doesn't mention she suffered at the hands of the physicians. And he doesn't mention that he got worse, you know. So, um, you know, he has a bias as a physician and doesn't want to point out anything more than he needs to except to say she went for help and they couldn't help her, you know. But Mark says she went for help and she suffered under their help and she spent a lot of money and she got a whole lot worse than she was. But Luke didn't want any part of that. And uh, in verse um, 44... She touches the tassels, Luke's account. She touched the tassels, and she's healed immediately. Because of her uncleanness, she really was not able to hold him, but she could hold his tassels, right? So the reason she's going for the tassels is because she's unclean, and so she can't touch him. So she's touching the tassel. She assumed, according to to Mark, verse 28, That if I touch but his garment, I will be made whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her plague. And so she was healed as she had expected to be. But look at verse 30 of Mark's account. Yeshua then asks, who touched my garments? And... Of course, he's asking the disciples this. Now, Yeshua knows who touched his garments. He's training the twelve. He wants to teach them. Remember, all of these issues train the twelve and to help people only on the basis of faith so that they begin to understand and exhibit faith. So check this out. In verse 30, he says, Who touched my garments? Now, given the intensity of the crowd, remember, everybody's pressing on him. It's like suffocation. They're looking around and saying, We don't know. In Mark verse 31, a lot of people have touched you. How are we supposed to know who touched you? But now he has the disciples' attention. They ought to know who touched them. Why? Because the one who touched them is the one who is healed. So the way to know which one touched them was to see which one was better. Not everyone who touched him got better. That's what he wants them to see. The one who had faith got better so what he wants them to find out is the one who touched them, they would know by the one that got well, and then they would know why she got well, because she had faith. The others who touched them, and there were plenty, right? It said that he was suffocated and so on. They were not being healed. They were not being changed. Why? Because they weren't exhibiting faith. That's what he wants them to learn. And so, uh, and notice, uh, Yeshua knows exactly, verse 32. It says, and he looked around... To see her that had done this thing. He knows who touched her. He wants the disciples to figure it out. And so the way to figure it out is look for the one that got well. That's the one that had faith. That's what you need to see. And so now in verse uh, 22, uh, excuse me, in Matthew's account, uh, in in Matthew's account, verse 22, Yeshua then, or let me go back. Luke verse 47. The woman confesses, right? He says, who touched me? He's looking around for that woman. And the woman says, when the woman saw that she was not hid, right? It's a crowd. She's in the crowd, but she stands out because she's well now. And was not hid. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people, all the people. This is a person of faith now. For what cause she touched them and how she was healed immediately. Look at Yeshua's statement. Daughter, your faith. Has made you whole. That's the lesson that he wants to teach his disciples: the need to exhibit faith, the need to uh, instigate faith in others, so that they might experience the healing touch of the Lord. By the way, this is—you know—I'm just thinking about this. This is what I've been preaching on Sunday morning, right? Looking at Paul's account, we are justified by grace through faith. Faith is the critical component. It's the instrumental means by which the power of God to save is unlocked. His grace saves, but it's by means of faith. That's the good news. It's not by works of the law. It's not by uh, tradition. It's not by morality. It's by His grace through faith. And that's what he's trying to get across here as well. He healed her by His grace. It was her faith that unleashed his grace to heal. And thus he says, your faith has made you well. Well, yes, but has got it's his mercy and grace that healed her. So now in Matthew's account, she, he's really clarifying her theology. It was not her touch of the tassel that healed him. That's what she thought. If I could just touch that tassel, I'll be healed. No, 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 no. It's not the tassel. It's the Lord who healed you. And it's not your touching of the tassel. It's your faith in him. And that's what he wants the disciples to learn. And that's what this woman has, has exhibited. The touch was an outworking of her faith. Now, this incident causes a delay. Remember, Yeshua was... Jairus had just bowed down to Yeshua and said, come and heal my daughter. That's what he was on the way to do. But on the way, he got delayed by the throng and he got delayed by this woman and by the lesson he wants to teach the disciples. So in verse 35, it says, while he yet spoke and said, your faith has made you well, one of the rulers of the synagogue's house, one of his servants came to them and said, look, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the master any further. It's too late. He didn't get here in time. And she has died. In verse 36, notice what Yeshua says. Fear not, only believe. Don't fear, have faith. Because faith is necessary for him to do his miracles now. He's not doing his miracles to authenticate his claim. He's doing his miracles on the basis of personal need. But that personal need will only be met if faith is exhibited. And so that's why he's telling them, only believe and you will find this uh, to occur. In verse 36, notice Yeshua does not perform the miracle for the public. So he has everyone removed from the house when he gets there. Yeshua could have just healed, you know, and he could just hold on. He could have just healed. He could have just done what he wanted to do, but he doesn't like in other instances. Here he's saying, I want to see faith. Whereas before 61, paragraph 61, he healed indiscriminately, faith or no faith. And here in this passage, he uh, also is not doing it for the public. He didn't heal her for the public. It was she who spoke publicly. He just healed her. But now with this woman, with this girl, he's not going to shout this from the rooftops at all. Let's, uh, let me finish the section and then if you have some questions. Notice in Mark's account, verse 36, he allowed no one to follow him into the woman's, uh, this daughter's room. Only the three apostles, Peter, James and John. And we're told if you look at Luke's account, verse 51, he also allowed the father and the mother So the parents are allowed in along with Peter, James, and John. Only three apostles and the parents. Then if you look at Mark's account, verse 41, he says two words. Talitha, kumi. Kumi uh, Kum is Aramaic, but very similar to Hebrew. means to rise up. And so Talitha is her name, Arabic name. He says, Aramaic name. He says, Talitha, rise up. The girl is resurrected from the dead. This is the first resurrection that he uh, Yeshua performs, I believe. In verse 43 of Mark's account, it says he then charged them that no one should know this. Now he gives his policy. Up to this point, he tells, he says to those who are healed, go and tell the world, because he did his miracles to authenticate his claims. But once he was rejected, now everything shifts. The miracles are not for the public. They are for private, personal need on the basis of faith. And secondly, he tells them, don't tell anyone. Why? Because it doesn't matter. He's not trying to authenticate his claims. He's already done that. The claim's been rejected. But he will minister on the basis of personal need. Now, it says that, uh, and then he says, very practical aspect, give her something uh, to heed. In Matthew's account, verse 26, it says, His fame went forth into all the land. So even though he tells them, Don't say anything, they do say things. But his policy is not to tell anyone because he's not concerned for the general public to see what has transpired. Garrett. Mm -hmm. let me just say this uh, because this is a long discussion Sunday I'm going to be speaking on that so make sure you come Uh, because we're in the I'm going to finish up Romans chapter 4 and the last section of it has to do with the nature of Abraham's faith. And so he, he, Paul provides us with a description of what faith ought to look like. Having said that, there's a distinction between what we're seeing here, faith in action as Messiah is trusted in. There's nothing said here about how much or how little their faith is. The disciples said, he says, you have little faith. That's because Messiah's right there they're not trusting. The woman who touches the tassel, we don't know how much faith she she had, but she had enough expectation that she was going to get up to Messiah and grab his tassel. So I don't know what level you would put that on. But it and it was also an act of desperation. She had this issue of blood for twelve years. And I do think there is some truth that Moments of desperation uh, sort of energize uh, a greater hope that God might do something in our behalf. I think there's a lot of similarity between faith and hope uh, and trust and expectation. Now, having said that, there's a difference between the gift of faith that we read about as one of the gifts of the Spirit and faith. When Paul talks about faith as a gift he's not talking about what we're seeing here here these are individuals that are willing to trust Messiah enough whatever that means however you want to quantify that enough to go to him for healing and to believe that he'll make that difference whereas when Paul writes about it he's talking about a gift that some have who can believe God in difficult and challenging uh, circumstances. Keep this in mind too. In the gospel account, Messiah is standing in their presence. He's not doing that today. He does not stand in our presence. He's present by his spirit, but we can't see him. They could. We can't touch him. They could. We are to trust God in Messiah on the basis of his word, the Bible, not on the basis of our experiences. And these encounters are not meant to give us a definition of what our own experiences ought to be. These are historical accounts of what transpired when Messiah was in the midst of his disciples, training them and encouraging them in faith they now have written for us God's Word and His Word now is to become the basis for our own faith and our own trust because while they had Messiah in their midst, we do not, but we have their Word which they did not yet have fully and completely as we have it today. There is definitely a difference and we can't make the parallel. It happened here, it must happen there. It's just because Messiah's presence in their midst was for training and for inspiring a faith. We now are called upon to believe without a lot of that stuff. And Messiah makes it clear. Uh, Thomas says, I must touch the hands, uh, the scars in his hands and feet. Messiah shows up and he says, but more blessed are those who believe and do not see. That's exactly the that's the point I guess I'm trying to make. That's exactly the issue. These individuals had sight that we do not have. And thus, our trust in him, as little or as great as it might be, he says, is more blessed because we don't have as much privilege. Uh, If that's helpful. But come Sunday, because I'm going to talk more about uh, the nature of faith. It's interesting that Yeshua himself says you have faith as a mustard seed. He never encourages people to pray for more faith. In fact, the disciples even say, I believe, help my own belief. Those are the kinds of prayers we have to offer. And then when we have opportunity to trust him, we have to make a choice to trust when it is difficult for us to do so. And I'm going to talk about that with regard to Abraham because he said, uh, uh, it's a very interesting phrase, something like, Uh, With uh, What is the phrase he says? Uh, Against all hope. He had hope in God's promise. Which means to say, when it appeared as if it was an impossibility, he believed it could happen. How much faith does that take? I don't know if you can quantify it. You either believe or you don't. Let me move on, uh, if I can. In paragraph 68... He demonstrates, he's demonstrated power over uh, nature, power over demons, power over disease. And now in paragraph 68, Mark, uh, excuse me, paragraph 68, Matthew chapter 9, he shows power over blindness. As Yeshua continues his ministry and as he's moving from one place to another, two blind men follow him. Matthew 27. As Yeshua passed by from there, two blind men followed him crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him, and Yeshua said unto them, "Believe. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said unto him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, there's the issue again, be it done unto you, and their eyes were opened. Notice, when they cry out for Yeshua to have mercy on them, calling him the son of David, which is a messianic title, so they're asking him to heal on the basis of his messianic character, Yeshua does nothing. And the reason is because he's been rejected as Israel's Messiah. So if we come to him now on the basis of his messiahship, on the basis of his fulfillment of those promises, he won't do anything. Because he's no longer demonstrating himself as Messiah. He's already done that. He's been rejected nationally. He will act Messiah-like, but if you come to Him on the basis of His Messianic claims, He ignores them. And that's because He no longer is doing His miracles on the basis of His Messianic expectations. Those are already rejected. But if they exhibit personal faith, then He will. And notice that Yeshua nurtures that faith in them. He doesn't just say, well, you know, you're calling upon me as the Messiah. I've been rejecting the Messiah. I'm sorry. You know? No, He encourages them to exhibit personal faith in him. And so, um, so when they come into the house, now their need becomes a private matter, not a public matter that has to do with uh, the entire nation. And Yeshua asks them about their faith. Do you believe I'm able to do this? He never asks this question prior to paragraph 61. He's never recorded as asking anything about the individual's faith prior to the national rejection. But now after it, he's always doing that. Do you believe your faith has made you whole? Why do you lack faith? Just trust. He says the same thing here. And it's interesting. Once he asks them, do you believe this? They, respond, they don't respond, yes, O oh son of David. They got the drift because now they say, yes, Lord. Now on the basis of his character as, uh, as God in the flesh... And as uh, the promised one and they're exhibiting faith in him, he heals them according to their faith. Matthew verse 30 certainly exhibits this new policy that's introduced. He strictly charges them. Verse 30, 31, see that no man knows it. Again, he tells them not to say anything because the miracle is not to demonstrate who he is. It's only for their own personal need based on faith. Now, like this woman they too spread abroad what he has done, and his fame continues to grow. In in paragraph 69 we have his final rejection in Nazareth. Somebody have the time? Okay. Are we hanging in there? We still doing okay? Okay. If we look at paragraph 69, we have his. Uh, re- he enters into Nazareth And we have his final rejection In paragraph 39 Yeshua was initially rejected In Nazareth And they wanted to th- throw him off the cliff In paragraph 69 His final rejection in Nazareth occurs He enters the city Look at Matthew uh, Verse 55 It says uh, And he taught them in their synagogues um, But uh, And insomuch as they were astonished, and he says, Whence, or from where has this man such wisdom and mighty works? In verse 55, we learn now for the first time that his father Joseph was a carpenter. Is not this the carpenter's son? Some have argued that it's possible that the term here can be stonemason. That's possible as well. Maybe there's some greater legitimacy seeing him as a stonemason. Not a lot of trees in Israel. And a lot of things are made out of stone. So it's possible that he wasn't a carpenter in the woodworking sense of the word. Perhaps stonemason might be uh, more accurate. But he could have been a woodworker uh, also. It's just a, you know, it's a possibility. And then we learn in Mark's account, verse 3, not only was, um, was Joseph, Yeshua's father, a carpenter, but verse 3 says that Yeshua himself was a carpenter. Uh, is not this the carpenter? And the other one says, is not this the carpenter's son? So he followed in his stepfathers, adopting, adoptive fathers, a uh, trade. We also learn that Yeshua had four half-brothers. He had a brother that was named James or Yaakov, Jacob. He had a brother whose name is Yosis, which is Joseph. He had a brother named Judas, which is Judah. And he had a brother named Simeon or Simon. And we know that he had at least two half-sisters because in verse 3 it says are, are not his sisters, plural, here with us as well. So they, Joseph and Mary had at least six other children after, uh, after the birth of Yeshua. In Matthew verse 57 it says that um, many were offended at him. And so there's a full-scale rejection of him. Where is this man? How does this man do all these things? And they were offended in him. And then in verse 58, it said that he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. There's the expectation, the need for faith in order to see um, the miracles occur. In paragraph 70, we have the witness in view of his rejection. We're going to focus primarily on Matthew's account since that's the, uh, the densest one or the Uh, the more complete one so if you look first of all however in mark chapter 6 verse 7 we learn that when yeshua sent out his disciples in light of his rejection they're going to be witnesses of him we find that according to mark's account he sends them out by two he began to send them forth two by two and he gave them authority uh, over unclean spirits and he charged them in matthew's account We find his threefold ministry. Look at verse 35, Matthew chapter 9. It says, first of all, he taught in their synagogues. The disciples then went out teaching in their synagogues. That's what his Yeshua's ministry was as well. Secondly, he preached the good news. That is the news of the mystery form of the kingdom. Uh, It's not the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Messiah, which is what we proclaim, but rather the mystery form of the kingdom. And we've talked about that in Matthew 13 with regard to the parables. And in verse 3, his ministry had to do with healing all illnesses. At this point, the people are not following their leaders. Um, They are sheep without a shepherd, Yeshua says. Look at Matthew chapter 9. He says he was moved with compassion. They were distressed. The people were distressed. They were scattered. They were sheep not having a shepherd. They don't know who to follow. The leadership is arguing over who Yeshua is, yet Yeshua is doing all these wonderful things. And this then is the focus of their ministry that Yeshua sends them off to. First of all, he tells them the harvest is plentiful. They said unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous. And he says, pray the Lord of the harvest, whether that's a reference to the spirit of God or the father. uh, We don't know for sure. It's not told to us. But he says, pray the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers. And the idea is that those who pray for laborers ought also to be willing to be laborers themselves. In other words, if we're going to pray, Lord, send forth laborers, we ought to be willing to be an answer to that prayer ourselves. As he tells them to pray for laborers, they themselves are those laborers who will go forth and, with the message of Yeshua and authenticate uh, who he is by their actions. So he tells them in practical terms uh, what their mission is. And it's, there are five things he tells them in verses uh, 5 through uh, 15 or so. First of all, he gives them authority, verse 1, Matthew chapter, uh Chapter 11, he calls his disciples. He gives them authority. And he names the disciples in verses 2 through uh, 4 uh, or so. And then in verse 5 and 6, he tells them the ter- their territory. He gives them the territorial assignment. The assignment is to go to the Jewish people. Look at verse 5. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not go in the way of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Of Israel, So their territory are Jews. That's who their ministry is to be limited to on this particular outing and moment of service. In verse seven and eight, he tells them that they are to proclaim the nature of God's kingdom program. The nature of the work that they are to do involves two things. They are to give the message that God's kingdom is at hand. Look at verse eight. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The opportunity to Uh, experience what god has through messiah is accessible and they are to proclaim that and the message they are to proclaim is to be authenticated by the miracles they are to do he says heal the sick raise the dead cleanse the leper cast out demons freely you receive freely give so their message was to be authenticated by their miracles that's why he's showing them the miracles that's why he's telling them that faith is critical This ought not to be looked at our... This is not our mandate. We're not mandated to just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, first of all. We're mandated to go into all the world, proclaim the good news. The good news that we're to proclaim is different than what the disciples are proclaiming here. So one cannot argue that we too are to uh, authenticate our message by these miracles. Because this is uniquely for the disciples. They have a different message and they have a different audience to whom they are to give the message to. And not only that, but look at verse 9 and 10. He tells them what they are to be concerned about. They are not to be paid. And certainly uh, this is not something that we recognize as a criteria for our message today. They're not to be paid for their, for their ministry. He tells them, uh, you are not to take any gold or silver. You're not to take any brass in your purses. You're not to have any wallet for your journey. He's trying to teach them trust in him to provide for their needs. Remember, this is a training exercise. Learn faith. Do these miracles to authenticate your message. Trust me to provide for your needs. He tells in Matthew's account, it says, only take a uh, staff uh, in verse 9 and 10. He says, uh, let's see, uh, for the, uh, he says, no shoes, no staff, right? Luke's account says, take nothing for your journey, neither uh, a staff. Mark's account says, take nothing for your journey, except the staff only. So some have said, okay, here's a contradiction. Again, the Greek helps, helps us out. Matthew and Luke's account, they're talking about A staff that's used for self-defense, a fighting instrument. Don't take anything uh, to defend yourselves. Uh, Matthew, uh, Mark's account, take a staff, is a walking stick. He says only take a staff, a walking stick. The other two different Greek words entirely. And then he tells them, find someone who is worthy. Their ministry is to be to believers. When he means worthy, he means those that exhibit faith. And those are the ones you are to look to to help you in providing for your needs and those that you will be ministering to. In verse 11, the fourth thing he tells them, so he told them their territory, only Jews. He told them the nature of their work. Proclaim the kingdom is at hand. Authenticate your message through miracles. The third thing he tells them is don't take anything for your personal needs, only a staff to help you walk. And then in verse 11, he tells them a fourth thing. They're to look for a town in which believers live. Notice he says, search out who are in it is worthy. And that's where you stay. That's where you abide. Look for the town where there are individuals. Make your home with believers. The emphasis, interestingly, is on individuals, families. Notice he says, don't go to the masses. He's been rejected by the masses. Go to families and individuals who would be responsive to it. And he then says, focus your ministry on believers, on the faithful remnant of that day. And then lastly, in Mark's account, verses 14 and uh, 15, or Matthew's account, 14 and 15, he tells them to shake off the dust of your feet, which is a sign that judgment then will be their lot. Judgment will come upon that city, but the worthy ones in that city will be spared. In Matthew's account, verses 16 to 23, he then gives them instructions in light of the coming persecution they are going to experience. If you look at verse 16 and 18, he tells them about the coming trials. He says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he tells them they are to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. And these instructions apply not for their immediate ministry, but for the long term. Notice he tells them that they are to go to synagogues, Jewish places. But in verse 18, he tells them they're going to come before governors and kings. And you will be brought for my sake for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So before he said only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But now he's telling them when in the midst of persecution, you're going to have a ministry that's going to go beyond the Jewish people. It will also include Gentiles. This is the first time different ministry now. And now he's looking to the long term, not to the immediate. And he tells them to expect widespread rejection from both the Jewish and Gentile communities. Verse 19, he tells them if, you, if they take their persecution correctly, this will be a testimony to Jews and Gentiles. And so Yeshua tells them initially not to go to the Gentiles, but sometime in the future they will have a ministry to the Gentiles and some of them will be responsive to their message, just as some of the Jews will be as well. In verses 19 and 20, he says, don't be concerned about what you will say. God will give you what you need to say. Now, he's not saying in this in this passage, listen, if you're going to get to a Bible study, you don't need to prepare. God is going to give you the words. What he's telling them is when you as disciples go and spread the word and you're brought before courts of law for Uh, proclaiming the name of the Messiah whom we have rejected, brought before the Sanhedrin, brought before councils, don't worry about what you will need to say. I will give you the words at that very hour. It doesn't mean we don't need to prepare and we don't need to be ready to go. He means that when you speak for me and you are persecuted and you are brought before judges and councils and uh, gatherings, don't worry about what you'll need to say because I will provide it for you. He tells them this, that the scope of their persecution, verses 21 and 23, will involve family members. The Jewish family unit is usually a very close-knit family. But because of Messiah's coming, it will cause be a cause for division, even in the family unit. And he says, you will be hated of all men. And he says this is going to go on until, look at verse 23, until you've gone through the, through Israel till the Son of Man comes. By the Son of Man comes, I don't think he's speaking of the second coming. Can't get into all of it tonight. But I think he's talking about the triumphal entry which will lead to his death. During your ministry that I'm appointing you to, you will be hounded. You're going to be hated. You're going to be stoned. You're not going to be accepted. And this is going to go on even until... The point at which I uh, go to my own demise and go to the cross until the Son of Man comes in the triumphal entry and then to my death as well. He tells them uh, that in verses, uh, in verse 20, 24, he gives them further instruction in view, not only of the persecution, but of their rejection. Verses 24 and 24, he says, Expect to be rejected on the same basis as Messiah was. They said of Messiah, he had a demon. They're going to say the same thing about you, he says to his disciples. A disciple is not above his master, nor a servant above his Lord. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? They said that Messiah did the miracle of healing the man who couldn't speak by the power of Beelzebub. So he tells them, you too will be rejected on the same basis I was. They will say, you have a demon. You're out of your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. Verses 26 and 27, he says, Do not fear persecution. There's only one person to fear. That is God. He who could take one soul and throw it into hell, he says. In verse 27, uh, verse 28, Be not afraid of them which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him. Which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Only God can do that. So He says, "Fear God; do not fear any man." Then He says in um, verses, uh, in verse thirty. 32 he says everyone in that generation must then make a choice verse 32 everyone therefore who confesses me before men i will confess before my father but whoever will deny me i will deny him before my father in that generation to those people the disciples go they're going to have to make a choice if they affirm the lord here on earth he will affirm them in heaven if they deny him here on earth he will deny them uh, in heaven And so in verse 34 through 39, he then speaks of the results of this rejection. In Verse 34, he said, Messiah came initially to offer the peacefulness of the messianic kingdom. Verse 34, think not that I came to send peace on the earth. I came initially to send peace on the earth through the messianic kingdom, but it's been rejected. And therefore, initially, he came to offer the peacefulness of the messianic kingdom. But since he was rejected, that offer is off the table. It's no longer available. Think not that I came to send peace. I came not to send peace, but a sword. By sword, he means that which will cause division and disunity. A man will be at variance against his father, a daughter against his mother, the daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be they of his own household." Division is going to occur among the nation of Israel. There will be those that will embrace Messiah and follow him. There will be those who will reject him. And there is going to be antagonism between these two entities. Nevertheless, he says, the way to find your life is to lose it. He says in verse 39, he that finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. We have to be willing to suffer for. Our Lord. Further, the last thing, two things he says, verse 40 to 42, he then tells that there are rewards for individuals who accept him rather than reject him. Whatever we do to further the work of the Lord, he says, will be rewarded. He that receives you receives me, and he that receives me receives him that sent me. He that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. He that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. Whoever even gives a drink unto one of these little ones a cup of water only in the name of a disciple. Verily I say unto you, he will in no wise lose his reward. No matter how great one's ministry and service may be or how small. Whether it is serving a cup of water or doing something rather uh, miraculous. No one will lose their reward who seek to further the work of the Lord and to serve him. Final word in Matthew, in this section, Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 1. He then has the fulfillment of this. He says that, uh, and they went out, verse 12 of Mark's account, they preached that men should repent. Notice they gave a word of repentance. Repentance means to change one's mind. And their message was that the Jewish people needed to change their minds about Yeshua. A.D. 70 is inevitable. Judgment will fall. The unpardonable sin has been committed. And the re- national rejection of Messiah by Israel has occurred. It is inevitable. However, individuals, though they may not be able to avert that moment of judgment, can receive eternal life. And so the disciples go out saying, repent. Repent. They cast out many demons, demonstrating and authenticating their message. And Matthew's account says, they then departed to teach and preach in their cities. And Luke tells us that they preached the good news, they healed everywhere. So next week what we'll do is we'll pick up with uh, section uh, 71, which is, I wanted to complete that. It's kind of a neat pat section on the death of John, uh, the death of the herald. That concludes uh, this major section of the life of Messiah. And then we move into a segment in which there is focus on the special training of the 12 in and around uh, the cities of Galilee. Adam. Well, the message that they're preaching now is the mystery form of the kingdom. They're not preaching the opportunity to receive the messianic kingdom, which John and Yeshua had uh, offered. After the rejection, remember we had the Matthew 13, the parables of the mystery form of the kingdom. That is what they're now offering to the people. Faith in Messiah and the, the kind of kingdom that will emerge as a result of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, not the result of his establishing the kingdom. It would be, but perhaps not quite as clear, only because Messiah has not yet died, buried, rose, or ascended. Paul at least can look back, see it as past. The disciples don't even know that it's about to dawn. They only know Yeshua is the Messiah, He's made those claims. You can invite him into your life. And here are miracles they're doing to authenticate uh, those truths. And we get a sense of it, you know, in Acts. Because you remember a great event, I think, or a great instance that helps us to see it. When they go up into the temple and there's the person that can't walk, sitting at and begging. And they would say, you know, uh, gold and silver we don't have any of. But in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, rise up and walk. And that was a healing for that individual They personally benefited. They demonstrated that he truly is the Messiah by the miracles they perform, that they just did. I think it's a similar kind of thing they're doing on this scale. And they even come back and they'll say, man, we couldn't heal one like this. We couldn't do one like that. And what does Yeshua say? You know, you're of little faith. You need to grow in trusting me. You need to trust me more or trust me better. So it's still a lesson on faith. And it's no longer the offer of the messianic kingdom. Well, listen, let's pray. And this way, if anyone needs to go, they can. And if you have any further questions, we can uh, take them as well for a little bit. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness tonight. We pray, Lord, that we might learn the lesson that the disciples were being taught, that you are the one in whom we should place our faith and place our trust may we do so completely. Not looking to hear special voices telling us to do this, that, or the other, but rather studying your word and being responsive to the truths that are found in your scripture. May we be ones that are devoted to the word of God that you have entrusted to us. And may we do our best by the power of your spirit to be responsive to its leading and its directing. For we pray in Yeshua's name, Amen. Okay, cut. And if there's uh, if there's uh, any questions, I'm happy to entertain them if you like. And if you need to go, please just you know just take off and do your thing as it were. Where are you going, Ann? <laughs> okay, okay. I'm just kidding. I was just kidding. Just kidding, Mitch. Oh, oh hold on. What what was your name again? Melanie? Say again? Oh, Melvina. Okay. Repentance means to change your mind. Conversion means to go in another direction. Repentance. When you repent, you're changing your mind about what just happened. Repent of doing this. You're now saying it was okay. Now you're saying, I changed my mind about that. It was not okay. It was wrong. Now to go in another direction is to convert. And so now you act differently than you may have acted before. Oh, Clint.